Hello, everybody, and welcome to Crystal, Kyle, and Friends. Um, today, though, it is just Crystal and Friend. Uh, Kyle and I are kind of dividing and conquering. He had an interview with Jordan Peterson that conflicted with the time of this interview, so we're just getting it all done. Um, and I'm very excited about the uh, guest that I'm going to get to interview today, Gary Gerstle. He's a professor. He's a history professor. He's also been one of the top thinkers in terms of understanding our politics as a series of political orders. So you had the New Deal order, then you have the neoliberal order. And now, according to his new book, he sees the death of the neoliberal order happening in real time and has some thoughts about um, what that looks like and what ultimately might come next. So very contentious. I would say the idea that the neoliberal order is dying. After all, Joe Biden is president. So we will get into all of that. But as I said, Gary Gerstle, he's the author of the book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. He is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus and the Paul Mellon Director of Research at the University of Cambridge. And here he is. Professor Gersel, great to have you. Welcome. Good to be here with you. Thank of course, you. Of course. So let's start with the absolute basics. What is your definition of the neoliberal order and when did it start? Well, let me first say um, a word about neoliberalism and then I'll say a word about the neoliberal order. Uh, neoliberalism at its most basic is the belief uh, that capitalism has to be free from regulation uh, by government so that it can achieve its full potential in terms of capital accumulation, job creation, abundance, globalization. States can be used only insofar as they support market activity, not to regulate market activity beyond a certain point. Uh, neoliberal ideas have been around for a long time, uh, since uh, the 1920s and 30s, and they are connected in my own thinking and belief to notions of classical liberalism as well, going back to the 18th century. But the neoliberal order suggests something uh, beyond uh, simply ideas. An order is a political movement that becomes something more than a political movement. It has stable constituencies. It has, it's dominated by one party with the ability to win elections consistently. It has a jurisprudential vision. It has a vision of a good life. It has networks of uh, policy makers. Uh, it has a core ideology that extends to many corners of American life, even beyond the, the political party that initially promoted it, which was the Republican party. And if we ask when neoliberalism became a political order, it was the 1980s and 1990s, first under President Reagan, and then sealing its triumph under the Democratic presidency of Bill Clinton during her, his two terms of office. So um, I want to start with kind of the present day, and then I want to go back and, and hear some about the, the history. But one of your contentions in the book is that the neoliberal order is dying, and yet here we sit with Joe Biden as president of the United States, a kind of consummate neoliberal, you know, almost the entirety of his political career takes place during the neoliberal order. And he has situated himself right squarely in the center of the mainstream of that order. So what is the evidence that you see that that order is dying? Well, let me first say uh, neoliberal ideas are not dying. They, they are still with us. Uh, but the neoliberal order, which connotes something more than ideas, it connotes the ability of an ideology and its supporters to uh, organize the entire political landscape. I think 
neoliberalism has lost its capacity to order the thinking of both parties. You're absolutely right to suggest that uh, Biden's roots are in the neoliberal era of the 1990s uh, and the first decade of the 21st century. And I treat both Clinton and Obama as operating within a neoliberal framework. Uh, but his first six months, nine months in office, I think marked a real break with neoliberal orthodoxy. And we see it most clearly in terms of the rapprochement and negotiation between Biden uh, and Bernie Sanders on the left, Bernie Sanders being deeply involved in the transition uh, of uh, the administration into power. A series of deals were struck between the center and left of the Democratic Party. Uh, Build Back Better is not a piece of legislation that I associate with the neoliberal order heyday. It would have been deemed to be too extreme. The progressive wing of the Democratic Party uh, gained a kind of influence uh, among the Democrats that it hasn't had on, uh, since the 1960s and arguably since the 1930s. Bernie Sanders became the man I consider to be the second most su successful socialist in American history after Eugene Victor Debs, who lived uh, more than a century ago. We forget all this now because that progressive phalanx uh, has been defeated uh, in, in a Senate that where the Democrats never really had a majority. But uh, Biden, and I credit him for this, uh, understood that his election occurred at an inflection point where the neoliberal promises of yesteryear were no longer working and the Democratic Party had to come up with some alternative set of ideas that might uh, push America into a different and less neoliberal future. I think there's another way of measuring the prestige of neoliberal ideas. Sometimes I talk about the four capitalist freedoms, and these are not the freedoms, the social democratic freedoms that Franklin Delano Roosevelt enunciated in 1941. Uh, the four capitalist freedoms are uh, free trade, free movement of people, free movement of information, uh, free movement of capital, all harnessed to a vision of global capitalist growth. And I would say each of those freedoms is under a kind of assault now of the sort that it had not been in the neoliberal heyday. Uh, protectionism is no longer a dirty word. The, uh, the prestige of free trade has been cracked. Free movement of people is something that the Wall Street Journal endorsed uh, for, for decades. It's a core principle of certain sectors of the neoliberal community. Walls against the free movement of people are going up everywhere. Uh, the promise, the techno-utopian promise of the 1990s was that uh, we would have in a single digital world where information could pass everywhere instantaneously, immediately. You could connect to anyone in any part of the globe and discuss anything you wanted to with them. Uh, and uh, including with that is um, uh, incredible data that would support all kinds of economic transactions. We see aspirations in the world now to carve up the world into a series of digital blocks with China, Russia, and to a lesser extent, Turkey leading the way. And I think Ukraine, uh, uh, the Ukraine crisis has brought back into, into discussion uh, the issue of controlling the movement of capital, which had been the sturdiest pillar uh, of neoliberal orthodoxy. Uh, I would say each of those what I call four capitalist freedoms, uh, I use the freedoms in quotation marks, mm -hmm. Uh, but I think it's a useful word to describe what I'm talking about. Each of those are in recession. 
And together, if we contemplate the magnitude of that recession, an ideological recession translating into economic policy, we can begin to grasp the degree to which the neoliberal order has certainly cracked in terms of its, its prestige and authority and is vulnerable to challenge in a way that it has not been for decades. And see, I actually agree with that analysis that, um, you know, here in the U.S., we're sort of living through the, the last gasps of the, the neoliberal order. My analysis of the Biden administration, though, is, is quite a bit different because even as you say, Build Back Better, which was primarily architected by Bernie Sanders, had more sort of New Deal or Social Democrat vibes than it did, you know, all of the old principles of neoliberalism. They still are holding fast to a lot of the tenets of you know, means testing and the the underall, overall uh, reliance on the market for guidance versus the kind of uh, universalist New Deal programs that you would associate with FDR. And then the bottom line is, of course, it didn't come to pass. So, yeah, it was a great idea and it had some kind of New Deal vibes to it, but ultimately it doesn't get through. And, you know, they're now talking about some incredibly minor provisions that they might be able to get Joe Manchin to agree to. But it's not like Biden really threw his muscle behind getting any single one of those programs through across the finish line. Um, ultimately, you also have the Democratic Party. Far from me seeing a sort of reproachment with the left, I see the opposite unfolding in these congressional primaries across the country, where the party and their allies have uh, spent a lot of money and organizational effort to try to defeat some of the lefty progressive primary candidates against more establishment aligned folks. We just saw this down in Texas with Henry Cuellar, you know, dragging across the finish line, somebody who is a, a you know, very centrist and both on economic policy and on cultural policy. So it doesn't seem to me from where I sit, like Joe Biden has really recognized that this era is over and he needs to make big adjustments. I see him behaving in exactly the way I kind of expected him, given his uh, his history and his time in Washington. Well, I would say political orders are not born in a day, and any political order worth its its weight is going to go through struggles to establish itself. Uh, the New Deal order, which became dominant in America in the 1930s and 1940s and beyond have been struggling for ascendancy since um, the first and second decades of the 20th century. Uh, and the proponents of that order were in the wilderness for 20 or 30 years. And the same can be said of the neoliberal order. Uh, there's a lot being written on Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises, other people crucial to the rise of neoliberalism, but they are utterly consequential in, in American and global politics in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And they don't get a break until the 1970s. And they suffer all sorts of reverses before they are able to claim victory. Some of the most interesting <laughs> reviews of my book have come from uh, conservative think tanks who what they like about it is my recovery of the long march of neoliberals through American institutions to get to the point where they could mount a serious effort to become uh, accepted dominant and with the ability to craft a political order that's, that organizes all of American life. And I think it's, it would be wise for us to adopt a similar and longer term perspective now to understand if there is a new progressive political order that is taking shape, 
It's not going to succeed overnight. Uh, newness is not rewarded. We also now have the complication uh, in, uh, in America of social media where the demand for immediate results is intense. And if the immediate results don't come, you've got to move on to something else. Those tendencies have to be resisted. So mm -hmm. the two political orders that I study in my book were not born overnight. They were born over a very long period of time. And uh, progressives have to steal themselves for the long march. I don't think this is all on Biden. I think there was a moment, uh, and this is a lost moment uh, in 2020, when things could have gone a different way. And I compare it to what was going on in the 1930s with Roosevelt. Roosevelt, I would say, was a much more skillful politician than Biden, but Biden grasped the moment he was in, much as uh, Roosevelt had done in the 1930s. What he, what he was lacking were Roosevelt's enormous majorities in Congress. And if we're gonna talk about how to overcome the loss and the defeat of 2021, which is a very serious loss and defeat for progressives mm -hmm. and, and a promise cut off and how progressives can recover from that, one has to focus not just on the presidency, but what does America have to do to, what do the Democrats have to do to build the kinds of majorities in both the House and the Senate in order to enact the kind of legislation that a progressive order is going to require. I think part, the progressive wing was in the driver's seat for a period of time in 2021, and they, then they discovered they were too weak to affect this transformation on American life. And one of the questions that has to be talked about is how can the Democratic Party build itself into the kind of dominant force where they can execute this kind of transformation. Uh, and that's a hard thing to do in the American political system, which long has been biased against uh, big urban areas where a lot of progressives uh, live and like to live. Uh, so it's not just a Biden question, it's a question for the Democratic Party. Uh, and there's no doubt in my mind that if a progressive order is gonna be successful, it's gonna have to steal itself for the long march and they can learn something from the neoliberal march through three decades from the 1940s through the 1970s. Is the Democratic Party too captured by capital to be able to um, make that transition? Uh, certainly the attachments uh, of the Democratic Party to sections of capital, especially Wall Street is incredibly strong. Uh, and thus, it's not easy uh, for uh, the Democrats to break the power of capital in their own party. Uh, but there have been instances, uh, the Democratic Party will never be a labor party or a party of social democracy uh, on, uh, in the way that some European parties are. It, it, will, it has always been and will always continue to be a party that uh, accommodates portions of capital uh, and then also accommodates portions of the working class or the poor uh, who are making very different kinds of demands. And the challenge of the Democratic Party is to figure out how to accommodate portions of capital uh, while at the same time putting forth a progressive agenda for the disenfranchised and the disinherited in American life. This was successfully done uh, in the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And I think that the power of capital within the Democratic Party can be corralled again, but there has to be a, a, a tremendous movement in, in the grassroots uh, on election day. And there also have to be uh, movements outside of the electoral arena that are able to push uh, the political system 
in a more democratic, more egalitarian direction because it's a political system that depends on the flow of such huge amounts of money through it. Right. Uh, even even if capital was forced out through the front door, they're going to find ways back in through the back door because of the sheer amount of money required to be a successful candidate at almost any level in American politics. So I want to today, come- but Bernie Sanders, he gave us a model of, of a, a different way in which this can this could be done. Uh, and uh, the Democratic Party has been most successful in its history when it has been able to balance the center and left of the Democratic Party in some kind of productive alliance. And that allows capital or certain sectors of capital to continue to play a part, uh, but it has to be contained uh, and the needs of the poor elements of the Democratic Party have to be squarely addressed. And I want to actually come back to why it was that Roosevelt was able to sort of corral capital or strike this bargain with capital at that point in time in history. But before we go there, do you see you you view Jimmy Carter as kind of this transitional figure between the New Deal and the neoliberal era? He had sort of his feet in both camps at different times during his presidency and moves forward with some deregulation, but also, you know, backs up some old parts of, of the New Deal order as well. Do you see Biden in that same mold as a sort of transitional figure and as a kind of another coming of Jimmy Carter, whereas Carter was transitioning neoliberal to New Deal era and there were some economic similarities between that time and now as well. And Biden is kind of that transitional figure on the other side. He might be. Uh, there's a negative and positive way of viewing Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. And here I'm thinking in strictly politically strategic terms. I'm not, I'm not thinking in ideological terms. Mm-hmm. I would judge his uh, presidency uh, largely on domestic grounds to, to be a failure. And there's no doubt that Biden faces the challenge now of his presidency uh, regarded as being a failure. But even as it failed, one can see in, in Carter uh, his uh, uh, his setting down the roots of what is going to become a powerful neoliberal order in the 1980s and 1990s. He passed some of the earliest uh, reform legislation pushing Congress in a, in a, in a neoliberal direction. Uh, and it's possible that um, uh, Biden may be seen in a similar way, that his presidency in itself will be regarded as a failure, uh, but that he grasped something about the moment and laid the foundation for uh, a progressive political order that may only come into its own in another five, 10, or 15 years. So uh, we can see the parallels in both cases, uh, the possibility of failed presidencies, uh, but also a transitional figure. And here I'm using transitional figure in a positive sense rather than a negative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not seeing, saying this to endorse neoliberal policy, but just to understand, I think progressives should study the ascent of the neoliberal order to power. It would, it would help progressives a great deal to understand uh, the challenges ahead of them uh, in building a new progressive political order. And I can see how some of the things that Biden did in, the, in his first year may be looked upon in a few years as paving the way for progressive triumph, as hard as that is to glimpse right now, because part of the, the triumph has to be the ability to think outside the box, to think uh, for a Democratic Party in ways that have not been thinking for some time. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that there was a breakout moment in the first half of 2021 uh, for the Democratic Party. And it may be uh, in five or six years that this is looked back upon as the beginning of 
um, a, a progressive movement that's going to gel into something much larger and much bigger and dominant, as hard as it is to grasp at this moment of depression and distress in the Democratic Party. Well, because there's no guarantees that what comes after neoliberalism is anything that looks progressive or lefty at all, um, because the Republicans are, you know, the right is crafting their own thing to come after um, the neoliberal order. Trump is somewhat of a representative of that, although I think in certain ways he governed uh, more like a, you know, traditional sort of Reagan conservative than some of his own supporters expected. But I'd be curious for your view of the Trump presidency and how much it represented a break from the neoliberal order versus a continuation with some sort of, you know, populist language layered on top. I decided to write this book in 2016. It was the twin shocks of Trump and Brexit. I'm an American living in Britain. I teach American history. Um, I follow things in America all the time. I will come back to America when I uh, fully retire, and yet I'm living in England. Uh, and I had to, and another nation I care very deeply about, and I had to endure the shock of Brexit and Trump in the same year. And what was so shocking is that both these developments were unimaginable in their respective societies 15 or 20 years before. Uh, and so even as I recognized the way in which uh, Trump continued certain neoliberal tendencies manifesting itself most clearly in his massive tax cut, which is his most significant domestic accomplishment. And then bringing in Mike Pence as his vice president. Mike Pence is an instrument of the Koch brothers in terms of uh, deregulating the administrative state and making existing agencies much less able to regulate the private economy. Uh, the Trump agenda, Pence agenda, Koch agenda advanced a great deal during his uh, four years in office. And while a lot of that evisceration of administrative agencies went under the radar. It's very significant and co has caused the Biden administration all kinds of trouble in trying to rebuild the vigor of those administrative institutions. So there are ways certainly in which Trump continued uh, neoliberal principles and tendencies, but he also broke with them uh, in very powerful ways. One sees this very clearly in his break with free trade. As much as Trump is a shape shapeshifter. He has never supported free trade. You can find his opposition to free trade uh, and his support for protectionism going all the way back to uh, the 1980s. He's hardly veered from that at all because he's someone who has always taken advantage of markets. He never saw the magic of markets, the perfection of markets. For him, markets were always things to be manipulated. So he never believed in the perfection of markets. And so he never came aboard that very important uh, neoliberal uh, principle. And he brought and he made protectionism along with Bernie Sanders on the left, a respectable position in American life. And with that went a deep opposition to globalization uh, and the insistence on erecting borders, both against goods and then, of course, against people. And one of the features of neoliberalism that overlaps with progressive thought, the two are not completely dissimilar, is uh, a commitment to cosmopolitanism, the mixing of peoples from different parts of the world. Now, from the neoliberal perspective, this is about moving labor to where it can be used most efficiently. 
and in some cases exploited for the higher highest profits. But if that means moving people from Africa or Asia into the United States or from or Mexico and creating a very diverse multicultural society, so be it. And of course, Trump's signature policy is um, build the wall, uh, keep Latin Americans out, detach America from its international obligations and its international association. America first, restore America to the kind of country that it should be, which is a country primarily for the descendants of European immigrants and not um, a country for people of color from those people from places that Trump described as shithole countries. And uh, this is not just a strike against progressivism, this is a strike against the global vision that neoliberalism had for the world, a sense of interconnectedness, the free movement of people. And so that gives you another indication of how much uh, he is um, breaking. Neoliberalism also believes in the rule of law. It's a law that can be manipulated to support market expansion and capitalist accumulation. Uh, but he has an authoritarianism in him and, and is supported in that by his uh, legions of, of fans. Uh, that is also very troubling for a ne neoliberal order that wants to rule by contract and, and law, how, however conceived. And so there are many elements of Trump, Trumpism that are, are deeply hostile to, to the future of neoliberalism. And one of the alternative futures to a progressive uh, order in the future is an authoritarian ethno-nationalist order. It, it will make a place for um, capital in, 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 in that order, uh, but it will not have the same kind of privileged place that it had in the neoliberal order. And that is one of the possible futures that America faces. And it's a very real um, possibility for America's future. And that would, I would say, further take the United States out of the neoliberal order. Can you draw that out a little bit, uh, zooming out not just in the U.S. context and the sort of Trump context, but um, what are the commonalities between the right-wing governments, the post-neoliberal right-wing governments um, and candidates that we see around the world? What is that, what is that potential alternative or future um, look like? Well, uh, Trump is uh, part of an authoritarian wave that's been sweeping the world for 10 or 15 years now. And um, they, these are authoritarians, they're anti-democratic. Um, they recognize themselves in each other. Who am I thinking of? Um, I'm thinking of Trump, Putin, Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Duarte until recently in the Philippines, uh, Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, Xi in China, although that's a bit of a uh, exceptional case because China still professes to be communist. Uh, and these are all people who have, uh, who think that uh, liberal democracies have run their course, uh, that they can't make the hard decisions that need to be made for societies to flourish, that societies require uh, a homogeneous core of people who are like-minded and share the same culture, the same religion, uh, the same race, which means they are much more hostile to globalization and the world and that they imagine living in is not a global world, but a world of hegemonic blocks, each hegemonic block led by one dictator or autocrats. Um, 
Trump in the United States, Putin in Russia, Xi in China, Erdogan in Turkey, a world broken, broken up into these blocks. It's no longer a world of globalization where people can move freely, where information can move freely. And these societies, uh, ought, to a certain, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, want to encourage free markets, but the free markets also ha have to submit to the national will. And we only have to look at what Putin is doing and the risk he took in terms of Ukraine. Uh, it turned out to be a huge miscalculation on his part, but uh, he's also saying, I'm willing to hurt capitalism in Russia for the sake of national integrity, national mm -hmm. will, national greatness. And if that means that capital has to submit to other imperatives of national security, uh, of secure borders, of, of glory, of elevating a worship of a man or a party over other things, so be it. Uh, and I think we can see clearly that uh, capital is no longer has primacy in Russia in the way it may have had once before. Now, Putin is also playing a clever economic game. He wants to strangle the food supply of the world. He thinks he can play the long game and, and enrich Russia uh, all over the long term, but he's willing to accept uh, huge economic losses for his nation and for his people over the shorter term for the sake of establishing a non-liberal economic, cultural, and political system and this is not a place where neoliberal capitalists can go in and do the kind of work that they were accustomed to doing uh, for 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, so this is another example of how these authoritarian tendencies, uh, they're not hostile to capitalism, but they're willing to uh, put constraints on the accumulation of capital for the sake of national will, national glory, national integrity, something other than simply the engine of capital accumulation. Yeah. Well, and it's ironic, especially with Putin, because he was basically brought in to expressly to uphold the neoliberal order. And now um, he's dramatically turned on it. I'm, I'm interested in hearing you talk more about China, which you described as an exceptional case. How does the rise of China uh, pose a further challenge to the neoliberal order? And what do you see their sort of political order as? Oh, it's hard to, it's hard to characterize. Uh, uh, they are, uh, Xi, Xi's program is to unleash uh, the forces of capital accumulation, but under the direction of an autocratic communist party, uh, where he is the ruler for life <laughs> and uh, maybe beyond and where the state still commands enormous authority. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a different amalgam of capital and the state than neoliberal societies are accustomed to because the understanding in neoliberal societies of the West is that the state really had to be an instrument of capital accumulation uh, and the state is, in some instances, an instrument of capital accumulation in China. And it's been a mechanism through which China has uh, developed economically in a remarkable way. Uh, but China also has the possibility to 
shut down and the will to shut down 20 million person cities like Shanghai. And the only way it can do this is not simply through its edicts, but it can deploy armies of civilian members of the Communist Party, or uh, it has this extraordinary force of labor that serves the state that doesn't serve capital, uh, and the determination to keep China uh, COVID-free, uh, uh, a project that has become much more difficult now that most nations in the world think that no nation over the long term can be COVID-free. Uh, this is an extraordinary example of what we might call older Soviet-style social engineering, even to the mm -hmm. point of sealing people in their homes so that they cannot leave. And so what we see taking uh, shape in China, I guess the best phrase for it would be state capitalism. It's not in any meaningful way communist, I don't think, even as they continue, the Communist Party continues to be in charge and continues to use that rhetoric. Uh, but it represents a novel merger of engines of capital accumulation with extraordinary direction uh, from the center of state power, which means, of course, that uh, the, uh, the state can stymie and constrain uh, and direct capital investment and capital accumulation in ways that are very hostile to neoliberal ways of um, ordering the world. Now, there are constraints on what the Chinese state will do because China understands that it has to be embedded in a global network of exchange, uh, but it has also been able to manipulate those global networks of exchange uh, to its benefit uh, in many cases. It, uh, it's, and the more power and growth that it has, the more it's gonna be able to dictate the term of contracts that it signs with uh, foreign companies. And in this respect, uh, this is a society that is engaging in a form of industrial planning. And one of the interesting questions is whether the success of industrial planning in a society like China will reawaken an interest in industrial planning in Western societies. Yeah. And if that is the case, whether those Western societies can manage that form of industrial planning within a democratic system, something that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have to worry about. Well, and I guess the other question I have about that is, does capital see that Chinese model, um, which you characterize as uh, sort of typical of the right wing model, but a bit of an exceptional case. Do they see that model as a threat? And the reason that I ask that is because, um, as you've written, the reason we were able to get sort of the contract of the New Deal era, the bargain that was struck with capital, is because you had this active threat of communism looming on the horizon. And so FDR is able to say, listen, we got to be radical for a generation here or else it's going to be the end of capitalism. And so you're able to strike this, you know, this bargain that effectively provides a lot of gains to workers, which have now been lost during the neoliberal era. So do does capital see that right wing alternative, that ethno nationalist alternative as a threat or are they comfortable with it? That's a really interesting question. Um... I think they see it, uh, and I, I don't know that world well enough, but I think they see it more as a, uh, as a threat uh, than as something that they would become 
very comfortable with uh, because if the Chinese model were to establish itself uh, in the United States, corporations would lose uh, a considerable amount of the freedom that they currently have under the American system. They might prosper, uh, but uh, it would they would have to operate under a set of constraints in which government and the state would set um, boundaries on capitalist activity and issue directives that capitalists would have to follow uh, that uh, big sections of American capital uh, have not been comfortable with. And uh, part of what's interesting about my book is that I, I have discussions with people on the progressive end of things with you. And I also have had discussions with <laughs> investors and uh, 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 and uh, I, they they see they are nervous about the future of uh, China, and I think you 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 Ukraine um, has worried them because what happens if there's another Ukraine and its its name is Taiwan, and what about if the capitalist West, West imposes sanctions on China similar to the sanctions that um, the West has imposed on Russia? Uh, what does that mean for the supply chains and the deep embeddedness of American capital in China? Uh, I think they're already beginning to think differently and they worry about the Chinese um, example and the, and, and the Chinese economy becoming something that they may have more trouble attaching themselves to in the future. So this may be an inflection point of thinking uh, for American capital and corporations in relation to what for a long time seemed like a set of very easy and convenient uh, and money-making investments in China. Uh, I don't think China can, can act as a, uh, in the way that the Soviet Union and what I would call true communism acted on the United States during the heyday of the New Deal order. And you characterize that part of my book correctly, that the fear of communism um, inclined American capitalists to compromise with American labor in ways they might not otherwise have done. The communists at that time saw themselves as part of a revolutionary movement sweeping the world. Uh, they saw themselves as expansive. There were communists in the United States that the Soviet Union was supporting. Uh, the Cold War was a battle over who would control the geopolitics of the world. Would it be the Soviet Union or the United States? Now, some of that is cropping up with China, but China is not on this revolutionary mission to spread communism everywhere. It has a very uh, acute sense of its distinctiveness as a nation, and it's invested in building up Chinese greatness and not in spreading world revolution. And so I don't think that it's going to have the fear effects that communist, Soviet communism had or Maoist communism had in the 1940s and 50s. I don't see it operating uh, in that way. Uh, I do see American capital being worried about competition from China in the global arena, uh, but I don't see the fear of China matching the fear of the Soviet Union or global communism in the 1930s and 40s. And of course that raises the really interesting question in the absence of that kind of threat, what is going to incline American capital to compromise with labor in a manner that it was willing to do when the threat of communism was global and felt very intensely in the United States uh, by all sectors of 
uh, the polity in all sectors of American capital? That's a really interesting question to which I don't have a quick or easy answer. Yeah. Do you see America as an empire in decline? I think I do. I think I do. I think um, if I think of the long sweep uh, of the last 150 years, I think uh, from the mid 19th century through World War One, that was a period of prac uh, of um, of of Pax Britannia, uh, where Britain was uh, had uh, the power to impose a kind of peace on the world, uh, which meant an, an ability to order capitalism, global capitalism of the late 19th and early 20th century. And I think uh, America, there was a Pax Americana that emerged uh, from World War II in two stages. First during the Cold War, Cold War where it had a formidable adversary uh, in the Soviet Union. And then the collapse of the Soviet Union allowed Pax Americana to, to triumph in the last decade of the 20th 20th century and the first decade of the 21st century. And I, I do see now that uh, we are moving to a different world order that is not going to be governed by America in the same way that it has ordered the world for the last 70 years. Uh, and we are moving, I think, toward a world in which there will be several hegemons, uh, of which the United States will be one, but it, it will be a world of, of multipolarity uh, that the United States has not had to live in for a quite long period of time. And the transition into a world of multipolarity is, is uh, full of tensions and, and um, vulnerabilities uh, and threats because none of the new emerging hegemons know exactly the boundaries of their power or how far they can push things, which increases the risk of war. And this uh, what's going on in the Ukraine now may be the opening salvo of this new geopolitical order, which is going to be a period of disorder before uh, the, the, a global world settles down into something other than Pax Americana. Yeah, I think we can also uh, interpret uh, the political situation in the United States, the dysfunction, the uh, paralysis in Congress, uh, the inability of the United States to find the will, uh, or the uh, the the kind of uh, political set of coalitions to solve uh, many of the urgent problems that face the United States. Uh, so I, I do see that America is in a kind of decline, but it's also important to remember that empires in decline decline slowly, unevenly and fight to reclaim every bit of territory and power that they have lost. In other words, the way in which the Soviet empire went out from the world in a flash between 1989 to 1991 was the exception. Mm. Um, the typical path of imperial decline is what Spain went through over a hundred years, Britain went through over a hundred years, the Ottomans went through over perhaps 150 years. So I think there's gotta be nothing quick about the disappearance of American power or influence. Uh, I think it's likely to be slow and, uh, and painful. And I think it's also important not to accept it as a fait accompli or to, to think of it as, um, uh, as uh, irreversibly 
uh, impairing the quality of American life. I think uh, it's important for Americans to begin thinking of what a post-imperial existence for America might look like. And that is certainly something that has to be on the progressive agenda going forward. Well, to that point, does it impact our ability to sort of chart our own political destiny? Because obviously, you know, under the American world order, we were very much able to uh, impose or encourage, strongly encourage neoliberalism more or less around the globe. And so, you know, other populations were kind of buffeted by these historical trends rather than affirmatively choosing these this direction for themselves. Are we going to be similarly buffeted by world events versus affirmatively charting our own course? I think we can see that already happening. Um, the... Um, uh, reacting to the surprise and shock of Ukraine, even as America, the American intelligence agencies in the last months up to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, seeing that. Uh, uh, COVID is a shock for which the United States and the rest of the world was unprepared. And I think we have to understand that as the first of multiple planetary shocks, some viral, some climate-induced. So it won't just be geopolitical adversaries um, uh, challenging the United States, uh, but it's going to be the planet itself challenging the United States. And that makes the premium of having an effective system of governance all the more imperative for a society to survive and flourish. Uh, And uh, the United, the governing system in the United States is currently and has been for some time, um, it's been malfunctioning. Uh, We see this demonstrated again with the Supreme Court decisions, the paralysis of Congress, the willingness of the Republican Party to be comfortable governing as a minority party in alliance with the Supreme Court, Uh, the inability of a president to have a chance to execute the platform on which he was elected. Uh, it's a it's a very troubling time for American governance, and I, I think it's right, as you suggest, to see it as not simply a matter of internal forces going awry, but the United States um, entering into a different relationship with the world right now that made older techniques of governance, that's making older techniques of governance much more difficult to sustain uh, going forward. And part of what I try and do in the book is to understand America. It's very much focused on the United States, but understand that the United States is always inhabiting a world of um, both possibility and, uh, and and adversaries. And it and it is being affected by what's going on in the world uh, it, where the United States is being affected internally in terms of what goes on in the world, even in moments when it doesn't fully understand or appreciate how that's happening. So it's so important as we become preoccupied with tribal conflicts within the United States to keep global processes and the global context in view and strive always to understand the way in which the global is influencing the national and the local. Could you talk a little bit more about the Supreme Court decisions? Because I think in terms of obviously the overturning Roe versus Wade is extraordinarily visceral and, you know, Clarence Thomas offering in his concurrence that uh, we, we should actually go further. We should roll back, you know, gay marriage. We should roll back. We should allow sodomy laws, anti-sodomy laws on the books again. 
But I think potentially uh, even more consequential in terms of just basic ability to govern and deal with the many crises that the country and the world are facing right now was their decision with regards to the EPA, which was really kind of an all-out assault on the administrative state and makes it very difficult for either party or whoever's in power to be able to govern and delegate authority to um, you know executive agencies in order to carry out the will of the Congress and hopefully by extension the will of the people. Um, how do you think about that decision and, you know, what it means for, because uh, in some ways this is a, this was a Koch brothers dream. I mean, this is, these justices were brought up through the Federalist Society and put on the bench exactly for this moment. And yet this decision, which is an all out attack on the administrative state, something very much in line with the neoliberal order comes as the neoliberal order itself is dying. Well, um, the I, like many other people, are trying to uh, deal with the, the powerful emotions, visceral emotions of this moment. And in terms of understanding um, the shock of this moment, uh, the, Republic, uh, the Republican Party has, of Mitch McConnell has for some time now declared its comfort at being a minority party. And it felt it, it didn't even have to strive for uh, a majority in the sense of electing presidents as long as it, McConnell could have his majority in the Senate that he might well regain uh, in the fall elections. Uh, America has been challenged by this form of minority rule, but I think uh, quite a number of progressives in America uh, thought that, well, as long as my basic rights uh, are protected by the Supreme Court will be okay. And by what I mean by that is a right to an abortion, um, a right to health care, health insurance, um, a right to have your children be safe, send your children to school and think that they'll be safe. Because the Supreme Court since the 1960s under the Warren Court became the protector of fundamental and core rights. And so I think there was a sense that the core rights are protected, whatever's wrong with the rest of America can be fixed. And suddenly the Supreme Court has declared it's no longer a protector of those core rights. And that contributes to the intensity of this moment and, and crisis. And it's going to lead to some profound rethinking among progressives uh, about what it takes to resuscitate democracy now that this alliance between McConnell and his Senate and a right-wing Supreme Court no longer willing to protect basic rights has been affected. So that's one set of responses that I have to this, this moment. Another set uh, speaks to your point about the EPA and rolling back the administrative state. And here the Supreme Court is going to force America and progressives to, for, to face a, a very uncomfortable reality. And I've written about this in a, in a previous book, and that is what authority does the federal government have to regulate the economy in the people's interest? And for a long time, Congress and the Supreme Court and president said um, the uh, federal government has no such authority uh, to govern private capital. And the 
revolution executed by the New Deal order and by the court that Roosevelt was able to put in place, a very progressive court that became the uh, Warren Court, was to say that there is something called the Commerce Clause in the Constitution that says the federal government has the right to regulate interstate commerce. And what the Warren Court and the court preceding it began to do was to say, well, what's commerce in America? Americans are buying and selling all the time. And even if they think that they're buying and selling locally, chances are that whatever they're buying, that stick of chewing gum that they bought at the neighborhood grocery, even, that, even if that feels like a local transaction, person may be living in Alabama and that piece of chewing gum was manufactured in Chicago. So even the most local of transactions involves interstate commerce and thus the federal government can, through its commerce clause power, can govern everything. And this became the basis for the regulatory state that the New Deal established. The EPA was justified under the Commerce Clause. Even the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was justified by the right of the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. The Federalist Society and many of the justice trained in, in this way of thinking have long considered the expansion of the Commerce Clause to be illegitimate. And their desire is not simply to roll back American law to before Roe versus Wade in 1973, it's to roll it back before the New Deal. It's mm -hmm. to undo the New Deal, the final elements of the New Deal order. It's to roll it back all the way to the progressive era in which capital would no longer be bound by any kind of meaningful regulatory state at the federal level. What the United States really needs is an amendment to the Constitution to give the majority of the American people what they really want, which is a federal government with the ability to regulate capital in the public interest. Mm. And the Constitution that America has, it makes it very difficult to do this. And various courts between Roosevelt's election and Jimmy Carter's election expanded the Commerce Clause to make the federal government a, a, a tremendously effective presence in American life. And if this court and, uh, and further Federalist Society justices get their way, uh, they may seek to unsettle that settlement uh, all the way back to 100 years, the 19-teens and 20s. And the best solution and the best resistance to that is an amendment to the Constitution, which is almost impossible to pass because the United States is burdened with an ancient Constitution that for all intents and purposes can't be changed. And that's going to compel Americans who want to have a serious regulatory state to manage private capital in the public interest, that is going to compel them to do what Americans had to do once before, which, which is to work outside the political arena, to invest in social movements, uh, to invest in a labor movement, to yeah. invest in civil rights movements, to invest in women's movements. In other words, the pressure to stop this movement is gonna have to come not from just from within government, but it's gotta to have to come from with, without government, or let me put that more accurately, outside government. Yeah. Uh, so, the, and, and so that popular forces, popular movements, 
compel a political system to bend toward the popular will in ways that cannot be accomplished from within the political system itself. Well, and to that point, you do see the stirrings of a renewed grassroots, more sort of militant, modern uh, labor movement that I've been watching with a lot of excitement and a lot of interest. Um, I wonder how you are viewing those, you know, early stirrings and also, um, you know, talking about the the formation of the New Deal era. Part of that is in opposition to the threat of communism. Part of it, though, is also you have, you know, this very militant labor movement willing to throw their weight around and willing to directly threaten capital. So how significant was that um, element in bringing about the New Deal era? Enormously significant for what became the New Deal order. Uh, there were actually uh, not one New Deal, but two New Deals. And the first New Deal that Franklin Roosevelt instituted when he came into office in 1933 had some things for the common man and woman, but it was heavily weighted toward getting the banks back on their feet. Kind of looked quite a lot like Obama's plan for hmm. recovery in 2008, 2009. Hmm. Um, uh, getting the, the industry back on its feet. Uh, there was some relief for individual workers and the poor, uh, but the concern was getting the economic machine of uh, American industry humming again, getting the banks working again. And from, from that would come uh, economic recovery uh, and a bright future. That's not what happened. Uh, and in one of the recovery acts, uh, Roosevelt stuck what looked like a very minor provision, Clause 7A of the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which said that workers have um, a right to join unions and that employers must bargain collectively with the unions that workers join. This was an afterthought, uh, kind of a, a throwaway provision. John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers, uh, who was a, a labor leader and a union insurgent, started going to the coal fields and other districts of Amer American industry and saying, the president wants you to join a union. Hmm. And actually, President Roosevelt didn't want any worker to join a union. <laughs> uh, John Lewis was speaking the truth in the sense that he, President John Lewis of the United Mine Workers, wanted all those workers to join unions. Uh, but it was a, it was a clever... Um, subterfuge, right? He just said, <laughs> the president wants you to join a union. And so hundreds of thousands and then millions of American workers began going on strike in the belief that Frank, they were doing Franklin Roosevelt's bidding. And then employers did not sit down with these new unions. They resisted them. There was conflict. There were general strikes. There was violence. Uh, and, uh, and then tremendous anger coursing the its way through the ranks of American labor, all the while uh, a million to two million workers going on strike in 1934 and 1935. Uh, and Roosevelt begins to worry about his reelection. Uh, and he begins to understand that if he doesn't do something more than he has done to support the cause of labor, that he may well lose to a candidate further to the left than him. And the man he feared the most was Huey Long of Louisiana before he was assassinated um, 
So, but this was the man he feared and Huey Long's campaign was share the wealth. And so Roosevelt turned sharply left in 1935 and 1936, uh, uh, passes the National Labor Relations Act, which with teeth that does really uh, compel employers to bargain uh, with unionists, uh, passes social security, passes a wealth tax act that up the rates on the highest income earners in America to 75%, attacks uh, rhetorically capitalists and employers as Tories who are the enemies of the American Revolution uh, and once, uh, and talks about chasing um, the money changers uh, and the elites from the center of power in American life. In other words, he takes a sharp left turn in 1935 and 36 because of pressure that the labor movement from below was able to bring on him. Uh, and it's, a, it's an example of what popular pressure can do when it builds to a certain point. And thus, uh, those who have some political power feel compelled to respond to that uh, because they fear for their ability to get reelected. Mm. And because of Roosevelt's turn left, which happens before the election of 1936, he wins one of the greatest victories ever achieved by an American president uh, and, uh, and has a, tr a tremendous popular vote and tremendous majority in the electoral college. Uh, and it is that reelection and that turn to the left that gives the New Deal its enduring definition and that would not have happened but for the labor rebellion of 1934, 35, and 36. And it provides an example of what popular pressure can do and how popular pressure exercised well can bring pressure on a political system that would rather not deal with the issue at hand. I think one can make a similar argument about the pressure that the civil rights movement of the 1960s mm -hmm. was able to bring on Congress and, and the president. And I think it's, uh, it's gonna be important for the progressives of the 21st century uh, to study those earlier movements and study how they moved from positions of peripheral influence and power to the center of American politics because there are lessons to be learned there. And uh, just to reiterate something we talked about at the beginning or early on in this program, this afternoon, uh, one has to be prepared for the long march. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think the beginnings of a reinvigorated uh, American labor movement are very encouraging, uh, very important. Uh, but it's here too, it's got to take time for those stirrings to develop into uh, an institutional presence, uh, into a popular force into a social movement that can be that can begin to shape American politics in Washington and in the various states in which these struggles are going on. Well, and, uh, you know, on a similar note, and this is a, the last question I have for you, um, sometimes when I'm reading your writing, it almost seems like there's an inevitability to these political orders. Like you, you don't focus, and I think this makes sense, on as much on the individual personalities, they're sort of responding to what's happening during their time. So speak a little bit to that. Do you see these orders as a sort of inevitability? And if that's the case, how do you view 
the present moment and, you know, the inevitability of neoliberals death and the inevitability of whatever it is that comes next? Uh, you, you read my book in the correct way in the sense that a second political order of 40 years follows an earlier political order of about 40 years. And I get questions like that from people now. Does this mean that we are on the cusp of a third political order that will also last for 40 years? Perhaps, uh, but there's nothing inevitable about the future. Uh, and I do think one can discern two political orders in formation that we have talked about uh, across the previous hour. One, the progressive political order embodied by the Biden-Sanders alliance that made a bid for power and influence in the first six to nine months of the Biden presidency. And then the alternative order on the right, authoritarian, ethno-nationalist, capitalist, yes, but not in a neoliberal way. Uh, there's a good chance that one of these orders will establish themselves and uh, not immediately as a political order. You begin as a political movement. You have to win several elections. And the true test of a political order is when it can begin to compel its the opposition party to play by its terms. So it's something that will develop over 10 or 15 years. But I'm also conscious that uh, at this moment, America is living through a period of disorder. And that period of disorder will not automatically end. It can only end through political will, social movements, political activity, political action. So I don't wanna give any listeners the sense that there invariably will be a new political order that emerges out of this moment of chaos. I think there likely will be one, but we don't know whether it will be on the right or on the left. Uh, and the timing of it, there's nothing inevitable about it. It's, it has, it's gonna be the product of political struggle, uh, political coalition, and people fighting deeply for what they believe in. Uh, and uh, it's not about inevitability. It has to be about political action, political movement, uh, people believing deeply in the future of the America that they are trying to build. That has to be a critical part of the future going forward. The book is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Professor, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Professor Gary Gerstel. Um, very thought-provoking interview and obviously an extraordinarily intelligent and well-read and extremely knowledgeable person about American and world history. Um, I was glad to address with him at the end that question of inevitability, because if you read his work, it does seem like, you know, this was going to happen, whether it was Bill Clinton or someone else in that position. This new era was here to stay. And um, it does make it seem almost like, you know, the the gears of history are turning and there's nothing you can really do about it. So I was glad to hear him say, you know, none of these outcomes are inevitable. They require struggle. They require, you know, political action. They require organizing. They require an energized labor movement um, because history is being written in real time. And we are in a time of lots of chaos. You know, I sort of disagree with some of his analysis of exactly you know, the the bargain that Joe Biden has struck with the left. I don't see any bargain with the left in this administration. 
But I think his broader analysis of the fact that the the sort of core tenets of neoliberalism are under stress and being cracked and, and torn apart in real time. And you have these, you know, very clear alternatives um, being offered both here and around the world as to what comes next. That piece of it, I think he's he's right on. Um, highly recommend the book. Definitely will, uh, you know, shape your your view of what's unfolding both here and around the globe as all of this unfolds in real time. So um, as always, thank you guys so much for watching. Um, if you are able to subscribe and become a premium subscriber and get the video early and on Friday and all that good stuff, we really greatly appreciate it. We really depend on you guys to be able to put out this show every week. Um, and to those of you who have already subscribed, we are deeply, deeply grateful for your support. So with all that being said, love you guys, and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>